Turn with me now to the book of Nahum. I'm also going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. So you can find Nahum chapter 2 and Revelation 19, which we will get to some point down the road. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, I think, is a name familiar to most. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I have a feeling most of us are at least acquainted with the name. He was a famous Baptist. He's been referred to as the Prince of Preachers, uh, ministered in London, England in the 1800s, and he, he penned the following, and I thought it would be a profitable place for us to begin this morning and in many ways make it our goal, our objective, to appreciate uh, what C.H. Spurgeon penned uh, many years ago. The terrible avenger is to be praised as well as the loving redeemer. We could spend the morning just unpacking that statement. The terrible avenger is to be praised as well as the loving redeemer. He goes on to say, against this, the sympathy of man's evil heart with his sin rebels. Man's evil heart cries out for an effeminate God in whom pity has strangled justice. Oh, but the well-instructed servants of Jehovah praise God in all the aspects of his character, whether terrible or tender. And so I pray that we here at Grace Community Church praise God. Praise the God who is in the entirety of his character. Those aspects which constitute his nature, whether terrible or tender. In the book of Nahum, we have been facing square on uh, what can only be described as the terrible. And we have seen the Lord as a jealous God. We have seen the Lord as a universal judge. And today we are appropriately enough going to behold the Lord as a terrible avenger. I'm going to read for you chapters 2 and 3. I know it's lengthy. I realize it could be a little tedious, but I pray it will serve us well. And let me just preface our reading by noting that what Nahum is going to give us is pretty straightforward. Uh, nothing too convoluted here. Firstly, he is going to paint a picture, a visual for us of the fall of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh. The year is 612 BC. Nahum is prophesying before that date. But what he foresees actually happens. Uh, that date, 612 BC, when the Babylonians overthrow the Assyrian Empire and they uh, destroy the city of Nineveh. And having given us that, that vision of desolation, he is then going to explain for us why. It's meaning. It's significance. It's dramatic. It is horrific. It is a terrible scene of desolation. It is reminiscent. I mean, if you think of some of those 
novels perhaps you have read in the past or a movie or two that you've seen. And if you can picture that, that scenario of a city under siege, when you hear that expression, you probably think of medieval Europe and the knights in the shining armor and these knights' armies gathered around these, these fortresses, these cities, that kind of captures the idea, but we're going much farther back in time. We are six, seven centuries before the Lord Jesus, but the same basic premise a city that is under siege, and a city that is left desolate. And so Nahum begins in verse 1 by describing these invaders. We know they are the Babylonians. These invaders approaching the city of Nineveh, and he declares, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, Collect all your strength, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his, that is God's mighty men, is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. So there's the opening scene. Invaders are marching toward, beginning to encircle the city of Nineveh. Here's the second scene. Nineveh readies itself for battle. Verse 4. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. And then we have a scene in verse 6. The invaders actually enter the city. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. And as we read on in the seventh verse, we discover that the citizens of the city of Nineveh are exiled. And all of the treasures of Nineveh are plundered. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Tenth verse, Nineveh is left desolate. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. And then in the remainder of the chapter, we have a taunt song. We're not supposed to taunt others, are we? The Lord taunts Nineveh. And he compares Nineveh to a pride of lions. Where is the lion's den? the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for its cubs and strangled prey for its lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. 
I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. And then there is one final scene, basically following the battle, the overthrow of Nineveh, and it is gruesome. It's found in the first three verses of the third chapter. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. The battle is finished as Nahum prophesies it. Again, it occurred. It came to pass. You can go to the history books and read all about it. The Babylonian devastation of the city of Nineveh. But now beginning in verse 4 through to the end of the book, Nineveh has four things. He makes four remarks concerning the fall of Nineveh. Firstly, he describes the reason for the city's fall. Verse 4. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. That's how he describes the city. Graceful and of deadly charms. Who betrays nations with her whorings. And peoples with her charms. He then describes in verse 5. The author of the fall of the city of Nineveh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? And so the reason for their desolation, their own sin and arrogance. The author of their desolation, God himself. Notice thirdly, the certainty of their desolation. Verse 8. Are you better than Thebes? Magnificent city that sat on the Nile. The Assyrians themselves had destroyed it somewhere around the year 660 BC. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees. With first ripe figs, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. 
When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. The desolation of the city of Nineveh is a certainty. Notice in verse 12, their fortresses. Notice in verse 13, their troops and their gates. Notice in verse 17, their princes and their scribes. Notice in verse 18, their shepherds and their nobles. None of them can stop what is coming. None of them can impede or turn back the desolation that is about to fall upon them. And then the fourth remark that Nahum has for us is the response to Nineveh's desolation. Verse 19, there is no ease in your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So where are we going to go with this? I'm going to do the following this morning in all seriousness. I want to explain for you why this horrific and dramatic scene of desolation reminds me of Jesus. Did you just hear what I said? I want to remind you, I want to impress upon you, I want to instruct you as to how this horrific scene of desolation actually reminds me of Jesus. Now, before I can do that, uh, I, am, I am aware of the fact that there might be just one person here. There might very well be, be many people present at this moment who nearly choked when I said, I want to demonstrate for you how this scene of desolation reminds me of Jesus. And there might very well be someone here who is thinking to himself, pondering to herself, you've gone mad. What are you talking about? This has nothing to do with my Jesus. And so you may be here for the first time, and you might already be regretting it. All right? It's, it's, it's a possibility. Stay with me, please. You may have been here just recently and you have accompanied this series in Nahum and you've thought to yourself, the sooner we get over with this, the better, because this, this, this has nothing to do with God as I know him. This has nothing to do with God as I perceive him. And this certainly has nothing to do with my Lord Jesus. You might very well be a member here and have attended here for years and even you're thinking to yourself, Stephen, the quicker you get back to the Gospels, the better. And the quicker we leave these dark and cloudy and oppressive and discouraging passages of Scripture in the prophets, the better. They're there. I know they're in the Bible. I read them every year as I go through my yearly reading program. But it's not what we need. We need Jesus. Well, I'm going to explain to you uh, why this scene of desolation 
shows me Jesus. And so recognizing that there might just be one that falls into that category. I want to, uh, I want to just speak to you directly, one-on-one, uh, for a few moments, okay? If you don't fall into that category, if you're tracking with me and you have no problem with, with what's being said, no problem with this text and reconciling it with, with Jesus, then, then I, don't tune out for the next 10, 15 minutes. You listen as well because I guarantee it, you know someone who does have a problem with this, all right? I submit to you that your average professing Christian out there has a huge problem with this. That is not my Jesus. How are you going to interact with them? How are you going to engage them? How are you going to bring them in Spurgeon's words to praise both, yes, the tender father and the terrible avenger? So I'm speaking to a very, perhaps very select few, but I'm convinced it's for all, especially as we engage with the culture, the culture as it is, and in particular the Christian culture so prevalent still among us. And so there you are. You are this individual, and you've been very patient. And I, and I congratulate you for your patience. It's wonderful. I certainly appreciate it and respect you for it. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this, this is absolute nonsense. This uh, makes no sense at all. This is not what I heard in Sunday school growing up. This is not the God I worship. And this, I, I just cannot get my mind around it. This has nothing to do with Jesus. I want to ask you four questions, four questions. I know in the sermon notes, there are five points there, right? I've reduced them to four so that no one causes a scene. They've been reduced to four. Scratch out number one. We're going to look at two, three, four, and five, but I will now renumber them. One, two, three, and four. Okay? Just to, just to lighten the atmosphere a little, because they, they, this, is, this, is, this is a heavy subject, and I know a troubling one and a potentially contentious one, but I think absolutely necessary if we are to worship the God who is. Here's my first question for you, friend. Here we are, we're sitting, we're discussing, and I would ask you, if you object to what I am saying, I would ask you this question, is it possible, is it possible you have a distorted view of God. Is it possible? You have a distorted view of God. We mentioned it in the adult Sunday school today, last week, an individual in church history known as Marcion. Marcion lived in the 200s, long time ago. His followers were known as Marcionites. And guess what? There are a ton of Marcionites today. They don't know it but it is what they are. What did Marcion teach? Marcion taught, look, I can't reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. I just, I just can't reconcile it. When I read that Old Testament, when I pick up the book of Nahum and I read this, I see a vengeful God. But when I read the New Testament, I see a merciful God. And so here's what I posit. I posit that we've actually got two gods in view. And the, the nice kind, merciful, forgiving God of the New Testament has come to rescue us from that tyrant of whom we read in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going, I'm only speaking to a few, right? I'm not calling you, friend, a Marcionite. 
Maybe I am, but I'm not initially calling you a Marcionite. What I am saying is that you're thinking, it's entirely possible that your thinking leans in that direction. Let me explain how this might be possible. You might actually, the way you view God, you might actually be denying the essential unity of the Father and the Son by believing that the Father is in view in the Old Testament while the Son is in view in the New Testament. That's common. And so I'm not, I'm not saying there are two gods, but actually if you, if you unpack that, you'll realize those, that means you do believe in two gods. But what you are doing is undermining the doctrine of the Trinity and the essential unity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. They are but one God. What is true of the Father is true of the Son. What is true of the Son is true of the Spirit. What is true of the Spirit is true of the Son and true of the Father. It is not that God the Father is the primary figure in the Old Testament and now God the Son and these are two different gods? What are we talking about here? No, 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 no. It is but one God who has revealed himself from Genesis through to Revelation. Closely related to that, you might be thinking, um, without consciously doing this, you are collapsing the numerical distinction between the Father and the Son by believing in a God who underwent a major personality change between the Testaments. Okay? We're friends. We're having coffee. I've just shared that with you. I would then add, and I don't say this to be smug. I don't say this to cause unnecessary offense. I would then add, friend, if that's where you fall, if that is your understanding, it makes you a heretic. You are now a heretic. You do not believe in the God of Scripture. You are worshiping an idol. Something you have created in your own mind it might very well have been reinforced in Sunday school. You might hear it from your friends. It makes no difference. You have departed from orthodoxy. And you have departed from the teaching of Scripture. We believe in one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Second question I would ask you is this. Is it possible, is it possible that your discomfort with Nahum and this idea of, of Jesus as a judge is it possible that your discomfort arises from a deficient view of sin? A deficient view of sin. You really don't think sin is as bad as it is. You really don't think sin is as serious as it is. There could be a number of reasons for that. You could simply now be a product having been influenced for, I don't know if you're 12 years of age or 20 years of age or 40 years of age. You, are now, you have now been influenced consciously, subconsciously by social Darwinism. You have. It is the environment in which we live. And according to social Darwinism, how do we explain sin? There are only two possible explanations. The one is what? The nurture argument. You are the responsible of your social... You are the, the result of your social environment. And so if there's something wrong with you, and you do bad things or devious things. The problem isn't you. 
problem was your parents. Problem was your grandparents. Problem was the school system. The problem was this culture in which we live. The problem was the president. The problem was this. The problem was that. The problem was this. You are simply the product of social engineering and the social environment in which you find yourself. People love that one. Why do they love it? Because it absolves them of all responsibility. It's not my fault that I'm like this. It's not my fault that I act like this. It's not my fault that I did this. It's the fault of the environment, the society in which I find myself. That is accepted truth in our culture. Or the other possibility is this. You're the fruit of your genetic makeup. The explanation is biological. Something's wrong in there. It's not wired quite right. You have one less this and one more that, or you're missing. There's some sort of genetic biological explanation as to why you do what you do. So if you buy into social Darwinism and you basically look out at humanity and even perceive yourself through one of these two lenses, well, I'm the product of my social environment or I'm the product of my genetic makeup, then how do I deal with my behavior? What is the solution to my behavior? Well, when it comes to dealing with sin, we won't call it that, let's just call it erratic or bad or negative behavior that arises from my social environment. Well, to change that, what do you need to change? Not me. Change my environment. Or if my behavior is the result of my genetic makeup gone haywire, then how do I change? Well, it's not actually me that needs to change. My genetic makeup needs to change. Give me a pill. And this is the day and age in which we live. All of a sudden, I drop this bomb into that discussion. You are a sinner. You have absolutely no one else to blame for it. You are a depraved sinner in the sight of God a rebel at heart, and a hater of God, and you're a child of wrath by nature. That does not play well, folks. That does not play well at all. And is it possible that you recoil to this portrayal of God as judge because you have an absolutely deficient view of who you are? Your sin and who you are in the sight of a holy God. Here's a third question I would ask you. Is it possible, let me move up a gear here. Is it possible you struggle with a diminished view of justice? Today, most people identify the chief purpose of justice as rehabilitation. It is not. The chief purpose of justice is retribution. But we have bought into this hook, line, and sinker that uh, justice is corrective. The goal of justice is to rehabilitate. No, it's not. The goal of justice is to mete out retribution for wrongs committed. Because we have changed in our understanding of justice in our society, we now transfer that to God. And this idea of God's justice as retribution we no longer have the mental categories to understand that because we think justice is merely corrective or its goal is to rehabilitate me, to help me. No, the goal of justice is retribution. We must not fail to see God's justice as the expression of his goodness in his condemnation of sinners and dealing with them justly.
and dealing with them as they deserve. Here's the fourth question I would ask you. Is it possible? And I think this is probably, all those other three come into play undoubtedly. But I'm going to hazard a guess that this one, number four, is, is the most common view out there that puts up a, just a roadblock when it comes to reconciling the book of Nahum, for example, with the Lord Jesus. It's this, a defective view of forgiveness. A defective view of forgiveness. Here is how it works. Four steps in this thought process. Are you ready? Friend, if you're still with me, and this is you, you know I'm talking to you. I'm going to get inside your head here, and here, here is how you think. Here is how you think. Number one, God is good. That's your starting point. You're probably not defining God's goodness as the Bible defines it. You'll be defining God's goodness as you define goodness, which is what? Whatever's in my self-interest. God is good. Meaning, he wants for me what I want for me. That's your starting point. God is good. You build on that. Well, since God is good, wanting for me what I want for me, he loves me unconditionally, no questions asked. Just as I am, the way I am, no questions asked, he loves me unconditionally. I build on that. I therefore conclude that God is not angry with me. He is never angry with me because for him to be angry with me would be for him to contradict his unconditional love for me and just how good he is toward me and just what exactly he does feel for me, which is unconditional acceptance. Right? And then I conclude from that, God has forgiven me. God is good as I define goodness. God loves me unconditionally. God is never angry with me. And God has forgiven me. If that captures your thought process, then please understand, on that premise, you must therefore alter what the Bible says about God's sovereignty, God's power, God's holiness, God's jealousy, God's anger, and God's judgment. Because none of those things can be reconciled with that defective view of God. He is good, again, meaning he wants for me what I want for me. And because he views me like that, he just loves me unconditionally, no strings attached. He doesn't expect anything from me. He doesn't demand anything of me. He just loves me unconditionally. And because he is good like that and loves me unconditionally, well, he could never be angry with me because that would be a contradiction of his unconditional love for me. And because he's never angry with me, well, that means he's already forgiven me. And now all of a sudden you throw Nahum into this. I cannot reconcile these two. And so you have a choice to make, don't you? You then alter what God's, the Bible says about God's power, God's vengeance, God's judgment, God's justice, God's anger, or what do you do? You alter your faulty understanding of God to bring it into line with Scripture. Let me ask those four questions again. Is it possible you have a distorted view of God? Is it possible you have a deficient view of sin? Is it possible you have a diminished view of justice? Is it possible you have a defective view of forgiveness? And I pray by the Spirit of God, again, if I, that's just directed at one or two, that that might shed much light on you 
on your predicament, who you are. And the Spirit of God might use it to rectify, correct your thinking and bring it in line with Scripture, not your own fanciful wishes and certainly not the dogma that we hear from the pervading culture. All that aside, what is it I want to do with this horrific scene? I want to tell you why it reminds me of Jesus. Again, referring to the sermon notes, so there's no misunderstanding. There are now four blanks at a fifth. Fifth, five ways, five ways. There's a story behind all of that. I'll spare you. Five ways in which Nahum, and in particular, this scene of desolation, remind me of Jesus. Number one, Nahum reminds me of who Jesus is. Go all the way back to the first chapter. And look at what we read in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who is that? It is the Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, the Lord is God. Who is God? He is triune. He is the Father. He is the Son. He is the Spirit. Who is the Lord Jesus? He is the Son incarnate, the Son come in the flesh. Therefore, Jesus is slow to anger and great in power. And Jesus will by no means clear the guilty. Both are true. Uh, he is the embodiment. This is, this is precious. We should revel in this. He is the embodiment of grace. He is the, the embodiment of, of mercy and of patience, kindness, and compassion. Amen. He is also the righteous judge who will execute his wrath upon his enemies. And there is no contradiction between the two. I asked you to find the book of Revelation, right? I hope you haven't already closed it. Chapter 19. And just follow along as I read this without any commentary. Revelation 19, verse 11. And here is a picture of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's Jesus. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who comes. It is a terrible, terrible phrase. He comes in the 15th verse to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Nahum shows me Jesus. He shows me, yes, that he is slow to anger, slow to anger. He abounds in mercy and patience and steadfastness and compassion. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Secondly, Nahum reminds me of why Jesus died. He reminds me of why Jesus died. Why did God bring such desolation upon the city of Nineveh and the entire Assyrian Empire? Why did God in the first place use Assyria to overthrow Israel? And then God uses the Babylonians to overthrow the Assyrians. He uses the Babylonians to overthrow Judah. And then he's going to punish the Babylonians with the Persians. Then he's going to punish the Persians with the Greeks. Then he's going to punish the Greeks with the Romans. And it has gone on and on and on throughout the history of humanity. Why? The word is sin. And Nahum is a graphic illustration of man's depravity and a powerful reminder as to why Jesus died. He is, declared John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But as Peter put it, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here's the third thing I see as I read Nahum. He reminds me of how much Jesus suffered. He reminds me of how much Jesus suffered. That if this is what the city of Nineveh went through, and I've used the word a lot, let me use it again. It is simply horrific. Nahum is very graphic, isn't he? In, In the detail. And we might very well recoil at this. Please understand, this is nothing in comparison to what the Lord Jesus bore upon Calvary's cross. Upon Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ himself underwent hell as his father, he who had been his eternal delight, his father, in in whose presence is fullness of joy, his father, whose countenance was his daily delight. At that moment, upon Calvary's cross, when he became sin for us, was forsaken by his Father. His countenance, his favor, his delight 
turned away. And the suffering from a human vantage point is unimaginable. What the Lord Jesus went through upon Calvary's cross, the book of Nineveh gives me but a taste of it. You think Nineveh is bad? You haven't spent enough time looking at the cross. That's bad. What happens there is unbelievable and unimaginable. And to think he is there because of your sin. And he is there because of my sin. Oh, as I read this scene of horror, it reminds me that Jesus is coming again to judge the world. The fall of Nineveh anticipates the final judgment. Track it through scripture. The fall of, of the world at the time of Noah's flood. The fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. The fall of Egypt under the 10 plagues. Again, the fall of Israel under the Assyrians. The fall of Judah under the Babylonians. And the rise and fall of all these world empires. The fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. It all hurls us forward. They're all projecting a future reality. They all anticipate the day of the Lord. That God has fixed a day. There's, there's, there's nothing as obvious as that. History testifies to it. Judgment is coming. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed. Who is the man whom he has appointed? It's Jesus. And that's why Paul writes in his second epistle to the Thessalonians that Jesus... Oh, the meek and lowly Jesus. He will come from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Fifthly and lastly, Nahum reminds me that knowing Jesus is everything. Knowing Jesus is everything. Look at the statement, chapter 2, verse 13. I'm referring to the opening statement. Behold, I am against you. It's repeated, third chapter, opening statement in verse 5. Behold, I am against you. Is that true of someone here this morning? Is that true of you, friend? That as God gazes down from glory above, he who is the omniscient and knows the minds and hearts of every man, woman, boy, girl gathered here at this very moment, he is uh, acutely aware of your spiritual condition, that at heart you are a, a rebel, a sinner. You have never repented of your sin or believed in the Lord Jesus. Do you understand that right now that sentence weighs on you, hangs perilously, perilously, if you like, above your head. Behold, I am against you. I'll tell you this, the opposite of that is good news. What is the opposite of that? Hear what the Lord says in Isaiah 43. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And I will be with you. It's night and day, folks, isn't it? It is life and death. 
On the one hand, those to whom, upon whom God looks and he declares, I am against you. And those on the other hand, God sees them and he declares, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And I will be with you. Now that ought to speak to each of us. It ought to speak to us in a fashion commensurate with our need. And let me begin with the unbeliever. Let me begin with the unbeliever among us. There you sit and you understand clearly your predicament. You understand, or at least you have heard it clearly, that in the sight of God, uh, you are under judgment. When you come to a book like Nahum, and you see how it points you to the Lord Jesus, surely the response is what, friend? It is repentance. It is to confess your sin, and it is to forsake your sin. Good, old-fashioned repentance. We don't hear much of it in our day. People don't like to hear much of it because it does not, it does not reconcile with their skewed understanding of God's unconditional love. My friend, you must repent. You must confess your sin and you must forsake your sin. And you must approach God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made atonement for sinners upon Calvary's cross. And understand this, that the vengeful God becomes the merciful God in Christ. And all who approach him through the Lord Jesus Christ, he welcomes with open arms, gathers into his family and declares, I have redeemed you. I have purchased you. I have, I have bought you. I have rescued you. I have called you by name. And now you are mine. And I will be with you. For those of our number, professing Christians, and you've been stumbling along this week, you've been stumbling along this past month, and let's face it, you've been stumbling along for some time now. I pray this glimpse of God, this glimpse of the Lord Jesus, causes us to fear Him, to revere Him, to stand in awe and wonder as to who the Lord Jesus is, this God, who He is. The terror of his judgment. Yes, he is the terrible avenger. And the wonder of his grace. He is a tender father. Oh, may that quicken us. May it strengthen us. May it comfort us. May it compel us to seek him, to pursue him with body, soul, mind, and strength. And let me say to all of us, that as we consider this God, as we consider again that great statement out of chapter 1, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And as we ponder this great salvation that God himself has established in and through his Son, Jesus Christ, oh, may we be stirred and motivated to express our gratitude for his unspeakable, unfathomable, kindness to us. This is the God who is. The terrible avenger, said Spurgeon, is to be praised. 
as well as the loving Redeemer. Against this, the sympathy of man's evil heart with sin rebels. It cries out for an effeminate God in whom pity has strangled justice. But the servants of Jehovah praise God in all the aspects of his character, whether terrible or tender. Our Heavenly Father, do indeed give us eyes to see and hearts to receive. We have handled your word this morning. And we have handled some very difficult truths, some exceedingly uh, difficult truths to comprehend and to appreciate. And so we pray that by your Spirit again, you would give us eyes to see. Help us to see your wondrous works in your word. Help us to see your glorious character. Above all else, help us to see the Lord Jesus and all that you have revealed in him. May he be sweet to each one this day. For the believer, may our hearts be strengthened, our faith, hope, and love kindled. And for the unbeliever, may this be the day of salvation. We ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.